Amen. You may be seated. And kids, you are dismissed to go downstairs, Gospel Project. Uh, if you haven't met me, my name is Ethan Fordham. I serve as an elder here at Renovation Church. Just grateful to be here to, to bring the, the word. And you know, <clears throat> when fall approaches, right, like sweater weather's great, right? Until you actually feel cold. It's like great in concept. It is great in, you know, as it's happening. But then it, you feel the cold outside. You're just like, <sighs> rats. Anyways, that is neither here nor there. <clears throat> but we continue our series through uh, the book of Philippians this morning. Um, and as we come to our text, I think we realize something. That sometimes we are encouraged to action. For instance, right? I'm sure most people here are familiar with fight or flight, Right, the fight or flight response. It's a psychological reaction to like a stressful or frightening situation. Right? If you've heard of this, you've probably heard about the, the mom who literally takes and picks a car up, right, for a child to get out, right? That's a fight response. For some of us, even simply in the, in the presence, to be in the presence of a single spider is a flight response. It certainly is for me. Sometimes we're encouraged to action. Our previous passage, we saw Paul. He's in prison, and he's really choosing between fight or flight, right? But, but for him, it's not really just like a psychological reaction to the situation that he was in, though frightening it was. His flight response was really ideal. He's like, because to be with Christ is better, right? To die would be gain. But that's not what Paul chooses. Paul chose the fight. For the sake of the Philippians' progress and joy in the faith. For them, he was going to stick around and do what he needed to do. To encourage them to act. To encourage them to something great. To action in the midst of frightening circumstances. We all need to be encouraged to act, don't we? Well, God is going to encourage us to act this morning. So we have to ask ourselves, how does God call us to act in the world as his church? So I invite you to open up your Bibles to Philippians, starting at chapter 1. I'm going to invite Evan Crocker to come up and read our passage for us. passage this morning comes from the New Testament book of Philippians, starting in chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you 
or am absent, I may hear you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from the love, any participation in the spirit, any affliction and sympathy, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee sh should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's go and ask the Spirit's assistance to help us this morning. Spirit of God, we come to you, and we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts. Change us. We are dependent upon you. Open your word to us so that we might see the love of God in the face of Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Philippi was a town, city, full of civic pride, right? Full of Roman patriotism. They're all about being Roman, right? There's a lot of uh, retired Officials, people, like, you know, somebodies, right? When they retired, where'd they go? They retired to Philippi. It's full of civic pride. And when it came to Roman patriotism, they had a creed, a motto. Caesar is Lord, which is an inherently religious statement for them. Religious and civil. But the Philippian Christians... They were being called to serve another Lord. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is, as citizens of heaven, let your life be consistent with Christ's life. In order to do that, he says, stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. For them, as citizens of heaven, loyal to Jesus Christ, what it meant to be faithful as citizens of heaven and unified, meant to be faithful and unified to the creed, Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar, Jesus is Lord. 
Jesus as Lord was the earliest form of Christian creed. It was the foundation of their unity and their life together. It's what set them apart from everybody else. Standing firm in heart and soul, united around this creed, was what it meant to act as those worthy of the gospel, to act as citizens of heaven. Well, Paul knew that just as Christ was persecuted and suffered for saying that he was Lord, and just as Paul himself was persecuted and suffered for saying Jesus is Lord, that the Philippians themselves would also be persecuted and suffer for saying Jesus is Lord. So he wants to encourage them. He says, don't be frightened. Easier said than done, right? Especially if there's a spider in the room. He says, don't be frightened. Philippians, don't worry. They're persecuting you is simply a sign to them that they've lost. It's a sign of their destruction. They might think, hey, Philippians, oh, they're getting persecuted, right? That means they're going to get destroyed. No, 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 no. It's actually a sign of their destruction and of the Philippians' salvation. Therefore, don't be frightened, Philippians. They lose because Jesus is victorious. Their persecution is a sign of your salvation. So act as those worthy of the gospel, united as you suffer. This is a challenging thing, isn't it? To think about suffering, to think about being unified under suffering. Renovation Church, how will we act as those worthy of the gospel? Well, we're going to stand firm in one faith. We're going to be unified in mind and spirit. And we might not suffer like the Philippians or like Paul, but we have to ask ourselves, something still has to guide us. Amen? We still have to be guided by something. So what unifies us? Well, Jesus is Lord, united the Philippians. But that creed, Jesus is Lord, developed over time. It didn't take on any new meaning. It just got bigger. It turned into creeds like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. I even brought one of these over, right? If you don't have one of these, grab one of these. We put them in this book for a reason. We unite as a church with the historic church, the one mind, one spirit, when we confess the words of these creeds. It's how we say, 2,000 years later, Jesus is Lord. This creed, this confession of ours, matters when suffering comes. When you suffer in this life, does our common creed come to your mind? Does it comfort you when you suffer? 
I don't know if you know this or not, but Christians have died to confess with one spirit and one mind the words of these creeds. Are you willing to die to confess these creeds? I was thinking about this. I couldn't help but be reminded of the Coptic Orthodox Church. It's a branch of Christianity, a part of the Eastern tradition, and the Coptic Church is in Egypt. And they're known for being the Church of the Martyr because of the heavy persecution that they suffer year after year after year, beheading after bombings. And even just recently, I, I found a video, and it was a, the Coptic, Coptic community was outside of a church that had been bombed the previous day. And you know what they were doing? Well, they were united, certainly, in one spirit, with one mind. And they were chanting the words of the Nicene Creed. That in the face of Muslim opposition that said, no, God, Allah, does not have a son. He does not have a son. These Coptic Christians, with that creed, stood outside that church that had just been bombed and said, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Is that not one spirit and mind for those brothers and sisters? Would we be so bold to stand up for such words, to confess, yes, Jesus is, is Lord, to confess the words of the creeds, the creeds that Christians have been confessing for so long, united in one heart, one soul, one mind, together in the face of suffering? But you might be thinking, oh, I've never even been near a church that's been bombed. I've never known anyone to have been beheaded. We probably won't suffer opposition here in our comfortable lives in America like the rest of the world does. But I think most often in our context, we suffer from within most often rather than from without. That there are worldly creeds that we confess to ourselves. Creeds like, I'm not good enough. I can't do, I, I, I am not good enough for God. God doesn't care. He doesn't love me. He could never. I mean, I, even just to confess, a creed in my own life that plagues me is often, I'm going to ruin my life. Why do I even believe that? Who tells me that? Does God tell me that? No. God doesn't tell me that. He doesn't tell you either that you don't matter. He doesn't tell you that you're not worthy. In fact, he does tell us we matter. We matter. How do I know this? I know it 
because we're confronted by truth. We're confronted by the creed. We read this again in Nicaea. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. What other words do we need to know that our God cares about us? Amen? For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. Friends, when you suffer, be united around words like these. These things protect and guard us from the truth. They're a sign when we hold to them true of our salvation, even when we suffer. I can't help but think that that's a faithful witness to the world. Amen? When in the face of creeds, both from within and from without, people peer in through those doors and they see people confessing Jesus is Lord in the face of suffering. Friends, we must be united around something or else we'll be taken captive by anything. We believe so that we can engage in godly conflict and suffer well as those united around the truth. Brothers and sisters, act as those worthy of the gospel and be united as you suffer. But our common heart and spirit is not merely to suffer well. Praise God, there's more to the story. It's also for the love of the community. We go on to read, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We have four conditional statements, right? If there is encouragement, if there is comfort, if there is participation, if there is affection and sympathy, right? He's saying, if these things are among you, then great. Be sure to cap it off with unity in the church. Be unified in your encouragement in Christ. Unify around love for one another. Be unified in your participation in the Spirit. Be unified in caring humility for one another. Without the church living in unity, there could be none of these. You would have nothing but an inward-facing religion. So Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, the same love. Be unified in these things. He's saying, if you have the ingredients, put them together for unity's sake. I don't care how many cans of tomatoes you have. It doesn't matter if you don't open them up, put them in the pot, spice it up a little bit, throw in some sausage, and put it on some pasta, right? Unify those ingredients among you for the sake of your unity in the world, for the sake of your love in your service. Unify together. Friends, Christ calls us to humble service in unity as the church. 
to take the lowly road, to serve one another here in this place, to count others more significant than ourselves, right? In, a, in an age where my self-fulfillment and my self-actualization reign supreme, God calls us to radical otherness, to be so other peopled in some ways, to love others so radically. I want everybody right now to look around you. Find a member, someone you know is a member at this church, other than your spouse, and know that those people should matter to you. That person should matter to you. Their life should matter. Friends, we covenant together in church membership for this very reason, to be unified around humble service, to serve one another, to count others more significant than ourselves. And I challenge you this week, Pair up with somebody and grab a copy of our church covenant because that's the way we decide that we're going to unify around humble service. That's how we talk about it. Those are the commitments that we make together. And friends, if, if you're here today and you aren't, or you are a Christian, but you aren't a member of a church, I, I challenge you to ask yourselves, how, how can I be faithful to this command? If I have these things, but am not unified with anyone, how can you be faithful to these commands? Pursue church membership with the body. Be a part of Christ's visible kingdom somewhere so that you can serve others, count others more significant than yourselves so that you can be a part of this humble service that the Lord calls his church to. Renovation Church, if there is any encouragement, love, participation, affection, and sympathy in your walk with Christ, act as those worthy of the gospel and be unified in humble service. These are great encouragements from Paul, are they not? Great encouragements toward unity, to suffer well under persecution, to humbly serve one another out of love. But these encouragements aren't, so to speak, a house floating in midair. They're founded on something, something true, profound, something that is life-changing. And this is where he goes next. Paul gives us the greatest reason for calling Christians to act in these ways. He first says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Literally, have the mind of Christ. This refers to what Paul meant when he said to, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. When you are in conflict and suffer, when you humbly serve one another, you are participating in the life of Christ. 
And he says, this is what Christ's life was. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and, under the, and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is, <clears throat> has been, come to be known as the Christ hymn. It probably wasn't original with Paul. It was probably a song or something that was chanted in the early church. And Paul is taking this creed, this, sorry, this song, and he's saying this is illustrating, right, Christ's life is a foundation for your life together. That Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. That in God's mission to save the world, he sent his Son, the Son, who was God himself, did not merely stay in heaven and like press a button and just like, it's like the salvation button. No, 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 no. He came down in the form of a man. From timeless infinity to time-bound finitude. From eternal happiness to earthly suffering. From endless glory to a humble death. He did this by becoming the God-man. What a foundation for humble service. Amen? That our God could do something like that. That he could come down here and do something like live and die for us. Humbly serving us. What a foundation for humble service. Amen? What more reasons could we possibly need than a God who humbly came to save us and serve us, right? He came to seek and to save the lost, to serve, not to be served, right? Brothers and sisters, when you serve, you do so as participating in Christ's life. To live is Christ. To serve is Christ. What a call to let your life be Christ-like, amen? to serve one another. But we do live in a culture, right? And we are tempted by those outward creeds to think of just me, myself, and I, to even come into the church and say, what's in it for me? I need the best things for me. Who's gonna serve me? But I gotta be honest, that's not Christ-like. It's Christ-light. That's, that's not true religion. That's false religion and a false Christ because that's not what Jesus did. Jesus came, he suffered, and humbly served us. Amen? What a foundation for humble service for us. To live is Christ. To serve is Christ. So friends, go and do likewise. Because of the gospel, act as those worthy of the gospel. And be united in humble service. But not only that, 
What a foundation for suffering well, right? Christianity, like, we're so used to being in a, the Christian West in America with fancy ideas of this being a Christian nation where Christians get to rule uh, and, and just kind of kick back. But our faith was never supposed to be an easy faith. It's one that was supp- involves suffering because it's a faith that participates in Christ's suffering. We participate in Christ's suffering when we suffer. Do we want to lose out on that? Do, is there some part of Christ's life that we don't want to engage in? No. We want to participate in Christ's life, even if it means that we suffer. On the surface, Christ's weakness in death should have been the last of him, right? He died on the cross. And then everybody thought that this meant Jesus dying on the cross, that he was cursed by God. He must have been. He hung on a cross. What a worthless and worthy, worthyless way to die. But that's how our God works. Through foolishness and weakness, he has always saved his people from their enemies. He has always saved his people through foolishness and weakness, through suffering, right? Abraham was weak and he was old and his body was as good as dead, but God brought a nation out of him. Gideon showed up with 300 of the guys that are just like, they drank the water wrong, which is why they could be there. 300 against innumerable Midianites, right? Who had the victory that day? Gideon had the victory that day because the Lord chooses to work through weakness and foolishness, through suffering to save, right? David was a young dude, Small guy, what's he show up with? A couple of stones and a slingshot. But at the end of the day, he cut Goliath's head right off his shoulders. Foolish weakness, suffering. Or Esther, who was in a world set against her, showed up before a king, uninvited, to intercede on behalf of the people. Save the nation. Does that sound familiar? All of these stories should sound familiar, right? Because if we're familiar with Christ's life, with Christ's suffering, with Christ's victory, we look at those stories and we say, it's about Jesus. That even they in the Old Testament were participating with Christ through foolish weakness, suffering means to save people from sin. Amen? The whole of Christian religion is a participation in Christ's suffering, right? To live is Christ, to suffer is Christ. Man, maybe we think that sounds foolish and weak, but praise God, because he says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God stronger than men. 
say this to myself as well as to all of us, but if only we could live into our suffering a little bit more without numbing it or avoiding it with the endless hours of, of Netflix or maybe even substances. We could just sit in our pain for a moment and just say to suffer is Christ. That it's through this Jesus is bringing me to salvation because Jesus suffered for me. If only we could sit in that for but a moment because to suffer is Christ. Friends, because of the gospel, act as those worthy of the gospel and be united as you suffer. Yes, Jesus was dead. It seemed that the enemy had the upper hand. He suffered immensely and was the weakest that anybody could ever possibly be. Dead. But he got out of that grave. And he led a host of souls in victorious triumph into God's kingdom. And has made us citizens of heaven. Amen? Where every, that's the thing to which we are, are headed. To God's kingdom. To our eternal glory and hope and rest in Christ, the place where every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. This is where we're headed. This is, this is a religion with a goal, right? With a hope in mind that even when you suffer and you are humble and are even humiliated in service, that we are heading toward the endless weight of glory, to the worship of our God, and to the praise of Jesus Christ for all eternity. Amen? The glory of God is the end of all of this. So when you serve and you suffer, keep the end in mind. You're heading towards glory. And that Jesus rose from the dead, as we just talked about in baptism, our union with him in his death and in his resurrection. We're Baptists. Why do we immerse people? We said it, right? The dipping of the whole. Like, why do we immerse people? It's because we believe that there's a powerful symbol when that water comes up out, body comes up out of the water. Resurrection from the grave. Amen? Friend, if you're here and you, and you don't know Jesus, I encourage you, bend your knee to him. Give up. It's in every way. What is faith when we come to Jesus? Well, it's, it's a giving up, acknowledging him as Lord, and desiring to love and to serve him with your life. Friends, that's worth it because it makes suffering worth it. It makes service worth it. And it has the greatest and best goal an end in mind. If you are a Christian this morning, look to Jesus. Participate in his life through suffering and humble service. 
He did it. So live as Christ. And know that through suffering and service, he's bringing you to your end. The glory of God and his eternal kingdom forever. Friends, act as those worthy of the gospel because of the gospel. Amen? Let me pray. Gracious and most merciful God, we come to you in Jesus' name. We trust ourselves to you. We come humbled, knowing that to suffer and to serve well is at first a gift from you to participate in Christ's life. Lord, give us the grace and strength to do so. Lord, may this, these acts be a, a witness to the world. When people look in here, they would see something beautiful and attractive of people who suffer and serve well because they have a God who suffered and served well for them. Be glorified in all of this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.